What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Before I start the show, I feel like there should be a warning. I'm reading public domain books and short stories and whatever else. Uh, Some of it may be offensive. I don't read these things before, so I don't review it, so it's kind of just by chance. So if anything in here is offensive, or most likely with these really old books, uh, bigoted, uh, don't hold me responsible. I'll be just as surprised as you are. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. Halloween is upon us, and with it, uh, dried leaves, kids trick-or-treating, and cold weather. And the last chance for me to read scary stories to you. Which, in this episode, I will be reading two, The Monkey's Paw and uh, A School Story by M.R. James. So, uh, maybe that'll kind of drag out the fun and spookiness that this month offers. Uh, For me... The spookiness and the terror will never end, because I own a house with mice in the basement. I laid down traps with peanut butter on them, and they just ate the peanut butter without setting off the traps. I laid down poison. Uh, They didn't touch the poison. So now I've hired a professional who told me I'm basically screwed and have to live with it. So that's terrifying every time I got to do the laundry, or next Monday when I do a podcast with Ben... Uh, another thing that's terrifying, my daughter has become a woman. And that's fine. What's terrifying is me trying to act like I know what I'm doing or that I'm able to help. So she's taken the day off of school, and I've taken the day off of work, and we've just been sort of sitting around doing nothing while I constantly ask her if she's feeling okay, because I don't know what else to say. So, I'll keep the spirit of the holidays in my heart for many months to come and I hope you can too let's begin with a school story by M.R. James two men in a smoking room were talking of their private school days at our school said A. Oh, they're doing that thing where they just use the first letter instead of the actual name. Was it because they were lazy or they were trying to keep everyone anonymous? I have no idea. At our school, said A, we had a ghost's footmark on the staircase. What was it like? Oh, very unconvincing. Just the shape of a shoe with a square toe, if I remember right. The staircase was a stone one. 
I never heard any story about the thing. That seems odd when you think of it. Why didn't somebody invent one, I wonder? You can never tell with little boys. They have a mythology of their own. There's a subject for you, by the way. The folklore of private schools. Yes, the crop is rather scanty, though, I imagine. If you were to investigate the cycle of ghost stories, for instance, which the boys at private schools tell each other, they would all turn out to be highly compressed versions of stories out of books. Nowadays, the Strand and Pearsons and so on would be extensively drawn upon. No doubt, they weren't born or thought of in my time. Let's see, I uh, wonder if I can remember the staple ones I was told. First, there was the house with a room in which a series of people insisted on passing a night, and each of them in the morning was found kneeling in a corner and had just time to say, I've seen it, and died. Wasn't that the uh, house in Berkeley Square? I dare say it was. Then there was the man who heard a noise in the passage at night and opened his door and saw someone crawling toward him on all fours with his eye hanging out on his cheek. There was besides, uh, let me think, yes, exclamation point, the room where a man was found dead in bed with a horseshoe mark on his forehead and the floor under the bed was covered with marks of horseshoes also. I don't know why. Also, there was a lady who, unlocking her bedroom door in a strange house, heard a thin voice among the bed curtains say, Now we're shut in for the night. None of those had any explanation or sequel. Eh, I wonder if they go on still, those stories. Oh, likely enough, with additions from the magazines, as I said. You never heard, did you, of a real ghost at a private school? Eh, question mark. I thought not. Nobody has ever that I've come across. From the way in which you said that, I gather you have... Oh, I don't really know. But there is what was in my mind. It happened at my private school 30-odd years ago, and I haven't any explanation of it. The school, I mean, was near London. It was established in a large and fairly old house, a great white building with very fine grounds about it. There were large cedars in the garden, as there are in so many of the older gardens in Thames Valley, and ancient elms in the three or four fields which we use at our games. I think probably it was quite an attractive place. Eh. Uh, boys seldom allow that their schools possess any tolerable features. I came to school in September, soon after the year 1870. And among the boys who arrived on the same day was one whom I took to, a Highland boy, whom I will call McLeod. I needn't, they didn't use an abbreviation for him. I needn't spend time in describing him. The main thing is that I got to know him very well. He was not an exceptional boy in any way, not particularly good at books or games, but he suited me. The school was a large one. There must have been from 120 to 130 boys there as a rule, and so a considerable staff of masters was required, and there were rather frequent changes among them. One term, perhaps it was my third or fourth, a new master made his appearance. His name was Samson. He was a eh, tallish, eh, stoutish, pale, black-bearded man. I think we liked him. Eh, he had traveled a good deal, it had stories which amused us on our school walk so that there was some competition among us to get within earshot of him. I remember, too, dear me, I have hardly thought of it since then, that he had a charm on his watch, watch chain, 
that attracted my attention one day, and he let me examine it. It was, I now suppose, a gold Byzantine coin. There was an effigy of some absurd emperor on one side, and the other side had been worn practically smooth, and he had it cut on it, rather barbarously, his own initials, uh, GWS, and a date, uh, 24th of July, uh, 1865. Yes, I can see it now. He told me he had picked it up in Constantinople. It was about the size of a florin, perhaps rather smaller. Well, the first odd thing that happened was this. Samson was doing Latin grammar with us, one of his favorite methods. Perhaps it was a rather good one, was to make us construct sentences out of our own heads to illustrate the rules he was trying to make us learn. Of course, that is a thing which gives a silly boy a chance of being impertinent. There are lots of school stories in which that happens, or anyhow there might be, but Samson was too good a disciplinarian for us to think of trying that on him. Now, on this occasion, he was telling us how to express remembering in Latin, and he ordered us uh, each to make a sentence, bringing up the verb mimini, I remember. Well, most of us made up some ordinary sentence, such as, uh, I remember my father, or he remembers his book, or something equally uninteresting. I dare say a good many put down mimino, or librum mem and so forth, but the boy I mentioned, McLeod, was evidently thinking of something more elaborate than that. The rest of us wanted to have our sentences passed and get on to something else. So some kicked him under the desk, and I, who was next to him, poked him and whispered to him, sharp, with a look, a sharp look, but he didn't seem to attend. I looked at his paper and saw he had put nothing down at all. So I jogged him again, harder than before, and upbraided him sharply for keeping us all waited. That did have some effect. He started and seemed to wake up. Then he very quickly scribbled out a couple of lines on the paper and showed up with the rest. As it was the last, or nearly the last, to come in, and as Samson had a good deal to say to the boys who had written Meminscuous Patrimio, and the rest of it, it turned out that the clock struck twelve before he had got to McLeod, and McLeod had to wait afterwards to have his sentence corrected. There was nothing much going on outside when I got out, so I waited for him to come. He came very slowly when he did arrive, and I guess there had been some sort of trouble. Well, I said, what'd you get? Oh, I don't know, said McLeod. Nothing much. But I think Samson's rather sick with me. Why did you show him up uh, some rot? No fear, he said. It was all right as far as I could see. It was like this. Memento. That's right enough to remember. And it takes a genitive. Memento puti interquator. Taxios. Uh, it's silly rot, I said. What made you shove that down? What does it mean? That's the funny part, said McLeod. I'm not quite sure what it does mean. All I know is it just came to my head and I corked it down. I know what I think it means. Because just before I wrote it down, I had some sort of picture of it in my head. I believe it means, remember the well among the four. What are those uh, dark sort of trees that have red berries on them? Uh, mountain ashes, I suppose you mean. I never heard of them. McLeod, no, I'll tell you, use. Well, and what did Samson say? Well, he was jolly out about it. 
When he read it, he got up and went to the mantelpiece and stopped quite a long time without saying anything, with his back to me. And then he said, without turning around, rather quiet, uh, What do you suppose that means? I told him what I thought. Only I couldn't remember the name of the silly tree, and then he wanted to know why I put it down. And I had to say something or another, and after that, he left off talking about it. He asked me how long I'd been here, and where my people lived, and things like that. And then I came away, but he wasn't looking a bit well. I don't remember any more that was said by either of us about this. Next day, McLeod took to his bed with a chill or something of his kind, and it was a week or more before he was in school again. And as much as a month went by without anything happening that was noticeable. Whether or not Mr. Sampson was really startled, as McLeod had thought, he didn't show it. I'm pretty sure, of course, now, that there was something very curious in his past history. But I'm not going to pretend that we boys were sharp enough to guess at any such thing. There was one other incident of the same kind as last which I told you several times since. That day we have made up examples in school to illustrate different rules. But there had never been any row except when we did them wrong. At last there came a day when we were going through those dismal things which people call conditional sentences. And we were told to make a conditional sentence expressing a future consequence. We did it... Uh, Eh, right or wrong, and showed up our bits of paper. Samson began looking through them. All at once he got up, eh, made some sort of odd noise in his throat, and rushed out by a door that was just by his desk. We sat there for a minute or two, and then I, I suppose was incorrect, but we went up and I and one or two others to look at the papers on his desk, and of course I thought someone must have put down some nonsense or another, and Samson had gone off to report him. All the same, I noticed that he hadn't taken any of the papers with him when he ran out. Well, the top paper on his desk was written in red ink, which no one used. And it wasn't in anyone's hand who was in class. They all looked at it, McLeod and all, and took their dying oaths that it wasn't theirs. Then I thought of counting the bits of paper. Of this, I made quite certain there were 17 bits of paper on the desk and 16 boys in the form. Well, I bagged the extra paper and kept it, and I believe I have it now. And now you will want to know what was written on it. It was a simple enough, it is harmless enough, I should have said. Si tu non vernis ad me ego venitum ad ti. Which means, I suppose, if you don't come to me, eh... Uh, I'll come to you. Could you show me the paper? Interrupted the listener. Ah, yes, I could. There's another odd thing about it. That same afternoon I took it out of my locker. I know for certain it was the same bit. And I made a finger mark on it. And no single trace of writing of any kind was there on it. I kept it, as I said. And since that time I have tried various experiments to see whether sympathetic ink had been used but absolutely without result. So much for that. After about a half an hour, Samson looked in again, and he had felt very unwell, and told us we might go. He came rather gingerly to his desk and gave just one look at the uppermost paper. I suppose he thought he must have been dreaming. Anyhow, he asked no questions. That day was a half-holiday. And next day, Samson was in school again, much as usual. That night, the third and last incident in my story happened. 
We, uh, McLeod and I, slept in a dormitory at right angles to the main building. Samson slept in the main building on the first floor. There was a very bright full moon at an hour which I can't tell exactly, but sometime between one and two, I was woken up by somebody shaking me. It was McLeod, and a nice state of mind he seemed to be in. Come, he said, come, there's a burglar getting in through Samson's window. As soon as I could speak, I said, well, why not call out and wake everybody up? No, no, he said, I'm not sure who it is, and I don't want to make a row. Come and look. Naturally, I came and looked, and naturally there was no one there. I was uh, cross enough. It should have called McLeod plenty of names. I couldn't tell why. It seemed to me that there was something wrong, something that made me very glad I wasn't alone to face it. We were still at the window looking out, and as soon as I could, I asked him uh, what he had heard or seen. I didn't hear anything at all, he said. But about five minutes before I woke you, I found myself looking out this window here, and there was a man sitting or kneeling on Samson's windowsill. And looking in, I thought he was beckoning. Eh, what sort of man? McLeod wriggled. I don't know, he said. But I can tell you one thing. He was beastly thin, and he looked as if he was wet all over. And, he said, looking round and whispering, as if he hardly liked to hear himself, I'm not at all sure he was alive. We went on eh, talking in whispers some time longer and eventually crept back to bed. No one else in the room woke or stirred the whole time. I believe we did sleep a bit afterwards, but we were very cheap next day. And next day, Mr. Samson was gone, not to be found. And I believe no trace of him has ever come to light since. In thinking it over, one of the oddest things about it all seemed to me to be that the fact that neither McLeod or I ever mentioned what had seen to any third person whatever. Of course, no questions were asked on the subject, and uh, if they had been, I'm inclined to believe that we would not have made any answer. We seem unable to speak about it. That's uh, my story, said the narrator. The only approach to a ghost story connected with a school that I know, but still, I think, an approach to such a thing. The sequel to this may perhaps be reckoned hardly conventional, but a sequel there is. And so it must be produced. There had been more than one listener to the story, and in the latter part of that same year or the next, one such listener was staying at a country house in Ireland. One evening, his host was turning over a drawer full of odds and ends in the smoking room. Suddenly, he put his hand upon a little box. Now, he said, you know about old things. Tell me what that is. My friend opened the little box, and he found in it a thin gold chain with an object attached to it. He glanced at the object and then took off his spectacles to examine it more narrowly. What's uh, the history of this? he asked. Odd enough, was the answer. You know the yew thicket in the shrubbery. Well, a year or two back, we were cleaning out old well that used to be in the clearing here, and what do you suppose we found? Is it possible that you found a body? said the visitor with an odd feeling of nervousness. We did that. But what's more, in every sense of the word, we found two. Oh, good heavens, two? Was there anything to show how they got there? Was the thing found with them? It was. Amongst the rags of old clothes uh, that were on one of the bodies, a bad business, whatever the story may have been, 
One body had the arms tight round the other. They must have been there thirty years or more. Long enough before we came to this place, you may judge we filled the well up fast enough. Do you think uh, anything of what's cut in the gold coin you have there? I think I can, said the friend, holding it to the light. But he read it without much difficulty. It seems to be GWS, 24th of July, 1865. And now, The Monkey's Paw, by W.W. Jacobs. Without, the night was cold and wet. But in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils, it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. "'Hark at the wind,' said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. "'Check.' "'I should hardly think that he'd come tonight,' said his father, with his hand poised over the board. "'Mate,' replied the son." "'That's the worst of living so far out,' bawled Mr. White, with sudden and unlooked-for violence. "'All of the ghastly, slushly, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. "'Pathway's a bog, and the road's a torrent. "'I don't know what people were thinking about. "'I suppose, because only two houses on the road are let, they think it doesn't matter.' "'Never mind, dear,' said his wife soothingly. "'Perhaps you'll win the next one.' Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. The new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut, tut and coughed loudly as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands, and taking off the proffered seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and a small uh, copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter. And he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts. As he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of strange scenes and doughty deeds of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He doesn't look like he's taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. "'I'd like to go to India myself,' said the old man, "'just to look around a bit, you know.' "'Better where you are,' said the Major, shaking his head. "'He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. "'I should like to see those old temples and fackers and jugglers,' said the old man. Uh, "'What was it you started telling me the other day about the monkey's paw or something, Morris?' "'Nothing,' said the soldier hastily. "'Leastways nothing worth hearing.' monkey's paw 
said Mrs. White curiously. Eh, well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absentmindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at it, said the major, fumbling in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and proffered it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace, but her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is uh, so special about it, inquired Mr. White, as he took it from his son and, having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old facker. I gotta find out how to pronounce this, because I just sound like I'm swearing. Fakir. Mm. Fakir. Fakir. Okay, fuck here. Still sounds like a swear word. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. "'Well, why don't you have three, sir?' said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him with the way that middle ages want to regard presumptuous youth. "'I have,' he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. "'And, uh, did you really have three wishes granted?' asked Mrs. White. "'I did,' said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth." "'And has anybody else wished?' inquired the old lady. "'The first man uh, had his three wishes, yes,' was the reply. "'I don't know what the first two were, but the third was for death. "'That's how I got the paw.' "'His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. "'If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now, then, Morris,' "'said the old man at last. "'What do you keep it for?' "'The soldier shook his head.' "'Fancy, I suppose,' he said slowly. "'If you could have another three wishes,' said the old man, eyeing him keenly. Eh, "'Would you have them?' "'I don't know,' said the other. "'I don't know.' He took the paw and, dangling it between his front finger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stopped down and snatched it off. "'Better let it burn,' said the soldier solemnly. "'If you don't want it, Morris,' said the old man, "'give it to me.' I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire again like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. How do you, uh, how do you do it? He inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. Uh, sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? <laughs> Her husband drew the talisman from his pocket, and then all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket and, placing chairs, motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper, the talisman was partially forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldier's adventures in India. 
If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train, we shan't make much of it. Did you give him anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, said he, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it, and he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert, with pretend horror. Why are we going to be rich and famous and happy? Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with, then you can't be henpecked. He darted around the table, pursued by the malign Mrs. White, <laughs> armed with a anti-mascar. Hmm. Mr. White shook the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, that's a fact, he said slowly. Seems to me I got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you? said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll do it. His father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son, with a solemn face somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hands like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though there's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man stared nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence, unusual and depressing, settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night, and something horrible squatting on top of the wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that with a little uneasy laugh he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw and with a little shiver he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning it is streamed over the breakfast table or it laughed at his fears there was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room which it had lacked on the previous night and the dirty shriveled little paw which was ditched on the sideboard with a carelessness uh, which betokened no great belief in its virtues I suppose all old soldiers are the same said Mrs. White the idea of listening to a are such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt you, father? Might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris, you said things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. 
Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it'll turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed and followed him to the door, watched him down the road, and returning to the breakfast table was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity, all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired Sergeant Majors of Bilba's habits when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said, as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. I'll swear to it. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There is no thought about it. I just had... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with 200 pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hands upon it, and then with a sudden resolution flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White at the same moment placed her hands behind her and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. Uh, she then uh, waited as patiently as her sex would permit <laughs> for him to broach his business, but he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last, and stooped and picked up a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You have not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And he eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly, but he is not in any pain. Oh, my God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance drawed upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling old hand upon his... There was a long silence. He was caught in the uh, machinery, said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring blankly out the window and, taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in the old courting days nearly 45 years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard. The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you at your great loss, he said, looking around. I beg you will understand I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. 
There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as a friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand and, rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at the visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. In the huge new cemetery some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectation gave place to resignation and hopelessness, recognition of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that, the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You'll be cold. It is colder for my son, said the woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears. The bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke from his start. The paw, she cried wildly. The monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. Where, where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it? It's in the parlor on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together and bending over kissed his cheek. I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? He questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. They've only had one. Is that not enough? He demanded fiercely. No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, are you mad? He cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you're saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman, feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried the old woman, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her. His voice shook. He had been dead ten days, and beside he... I could not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see, then how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him toward the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear 
that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him, and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way around the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face uh, seemed changed as she entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish, she cried in a strong voice. It's foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish, repeated the wife. He raised his hand. I uh, uh, wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burnt below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back into his bed. And a minute or two afterward, the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noiselessly through the wall. The darkness was oppressive. And after lying for some time, screwing up his courage, the husband took the box of matches and, striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at that same moment a knock, so quiet and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand, and he stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. Eh, a rat, said the old man in shaking tones. A rat. It passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert, she screamed. It's Herbert. She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, catching her by the arm, held her tightly. "'What are you going to do?' he whispered hoarsely. "'It's my boy, Herbert,' she cried, struggling mechanically. "'I forgot it was two miles away. "'What are you holding me for? "'Let go. I must open the door.' "'For God's sake, don't let it in,' cried the old man, trembling. "'You're afraid of your own son,' she cried, struggling. "'Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming.' "'There's another knock, and another.' "'The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room.' Her husband followed to the landing and called after her. Appealingly, as he hurried downstairs, he heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly, come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If he could only find it before the thing got in. A perfect falsate of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw, and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly, uh, although the echoes of it were still in the house. 
He heard the chair draw back and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. And so there you have two Halloweenish stories. A School Story by M.R. James and The Monkey's Paw by W.W. Jacobs. What do we learn from these two stories that we can tie together? Uh, things can be cursed, uh, whether it's a coin or a dead animal's hand. So don't, uh, don't mess with them. Also, why would you hold a severed monkey's hand a lot? The gross, dead, monkey hand hair and stuff. I had a rabbit's foot a while ago that my daughter wanted really badly. And uh, I got a rabbit's foot. And it's disgusting. This taxidermy thing. It's gross. But back then, nobody cared about germs. So that's what we learned. I hope you have a nice Halloween. And that uh, you enjoy the uh, holiday and the kids at your door who won't leave even if you turn all the lights off. There's wine candy. Uh, Tune in next time as uh, Ben and I read a story about sports.